Kareem. The Shaykh said that due to the fact that the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, it is the second source of information for the Sharia after the Book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the scholars of Islam they gave much importance to the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ also. So they took it upon themselves or they, they advanced towards the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ in understanding it in terms of the narrations, the chains, and also in terms of the meaning and the fiqh of the ahadith. And they wrote many different books in this field, in the books of ahadith. And they placed or they made many explanations of these books of hadith also. All of that the Shaykh says indicates that the importance of the Sunnah or the affair of the Sunnah is something very important in Islam. Because the Sunnah of the Prophet it clarifies the Quran. And it explains the Qur'an. And it is indicative of the Qur'an. وَاللَّهُ جَلَّ وَعَلَىٰ وَكَلَىٰ إِلَيْهِ رَسُولُهُ صلى الله عليه وسلم بِيَانَ الْقُرْآنِ And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given the responsibility to the Prophet to clarify this Qur'an. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala stated in the Qur'an, وَأَنزَلْنَا إِلَيْكَ الذِّكْرَ لِتُبَيَّنَ لِلنَّاسِ مَا نُزِّلَ إِلَيْهِمْ in Surah Al-Nahl, ayah number 44, that we have revealed to you this Qur'an, this Sunnah, we have revealed to you this Qur'an so that you can clarify to the people ma nuzzila ilayhim, that which has been revealed to them. So that maybe they will ponder over that and think over that. Similarly, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned in the Qur'an, وَأَنزَلَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْكَ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةِ In Surah An-Nisa, ayah number 113, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed upon you the book, which is the Qur'an, and the hikmah. The scholars, they said, the likes of Imam Shafi'i, that al-hikmah, it is the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Similarly, after that, the Shaykh continues to summarize it. He says, "Wallahu Taala yaqulu fi haqqi Nabihi sallallahu alaihi wasallam." Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has said with regards to the right of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, "Wama yantiqu an al-hawa in huwa illa wahyun yuha." That the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam does not speak from desires; rather, that is revelation that is revealed to him. Surah Al-Najm, ayah number three and four. So the Shaykh says, "Fasunnatuhu sallallahu alaihi wasallam." The Sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. وَحْيٌ مِنَ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى فِي مَعْنَاهَا وَلَكِنَّ لَفْظَهَا مِنَ الرَّسُولِ صَلَى اللَّهُ So the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, it is revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in its meaning, but the words are the words of the Prophet ﷺ. فَالنَّبِيُّ سَلَى يَقُولُ أَلَا وَإِنِّي قَدْ أُوْتِيتُ الْقُرْآنِ وَمِثْلُهُ مَعَهُ That indeed I have been given the Qur'an and something similar to it. So all of this the Shaykh is giving this in the introduction. Shaykh Salih al-Fawzan, Allah. To explain the status and the rank of the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. And that is why the Shaykh mentions that the scholars, they gave it so much importance from the past and to the present. They gave importance to the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ in understanding it, the change of narrations, its uh, fiqh of the ahadith, 
And the reason why he's mentioning that is because this book that we have now, Bulugh al-Maram, it is a book of hadith. The whole book is just full of a hadith. It is not the speech of Al-Hafid ibn Hajar himself. All he does is mentions the name of the chapter and he gives you the ahadith in that chapter. So this is a book full of the ahadith of the Prophet ﷺ. And so this is a book which is from one of those books that is in reality, it's not an, uh, an extremely lengthy book. It's a more of a summarized book. However, it does have a combination or an encompassment of the different details of the different ahadith. So here then... We have this book the Sheikh mentions, the book Bulugh al-Maram. And as you're aware then, this is a book which moves along upon the chapters of fiqh. So the first chapter that begins, or the uh, Al-Hafid ibn Hajar begins with, is the chapter of At-Tahara, Kitab At-Tahara, the chapter of purification. Then after that, the first subsection is Babul Miyah, the chapter of the different types of water. Here the scholars they mention Kitabu Tahara. Kitabu Tahara, the book of purification. What does Kitab mean? They say Kitab, when it says here Kitabu Tahara, the book of purification, Kitab in itself means something which combines and brings together some items or some details. So the Kitab here, the word Kitab in the Arabic language, it means to bring something together, to collect a variety of things in one area. So here now, Kitab al-Tahara, meaning that the Hafiz, Al-Hafiz ibn Hajar, he intends by it that he's going to bring together the issues of purification in this chapter. This is going to be a combination of the issues of purification in this particular chapter. Then, Al-Tahara, purification. What is purification? Al-Tahara, in the language they say, linguistically, it is an-nadhafa wa-nazaha anil aqdar al-hissiyya wal-ma'nawiyya. It is to cleanse yourself and to clean yourself from the al-aqdar. Al-aqdar meaning those things that are dirty, those things that are disgusting, those things which are unliked, disliked from those impurities or those unclean uh, things, those dirty things, to purify yourself and to clean yourself from those impurities, whether they are physical impurities or they are abstract impurities. Abstract meaning that it's not something physical, it's not something you can see or touch or smell or feel, but it's a type of impurity nevertheless. So there are two types here in this linguistic meaning. Linguistically, Purify yourself, tahara, purification, is the cleanliness from those impurities, whether they are physical impurities or non-physical impurities. The physical impurities are like what? What's examples of physical impurities? Urine. Urine is a type of physical impurity. Feces, stool, is a type of physical impurity. What about the abstract type of impurities? The non-physical types of impurities. What's meant by that? What are the 
the non-physical types of impurities or the non-physical type of dirty things or disliked things, disgusting things. From amongst those, Ash-Shaykh Salih al-Fawzan, he mentions here now, وَالْمَعْنَوِيَّ مِثْلُ الْأَخْلَاقِ الْفَاسِدَةِ He says, even bad manners, corrupt manners and behavior, even corrupt manners and behavior is something which is a type of impurity upon your character. It's a type of impurity upon yourself that you have evil manners and evil behaviors and bad characteristics and bad morals and manners. Even that is a type of impurity. But obviously that is a non-physical type of impurity. Because bad manners is not something you can wash away. It's not a stain that you can wash and then your skin will be pure again. It's something non-physical. But it's a type of impurity. It's a type of dirtiness upon yourself. These evil and bad manners. So that's one thing the Shaykh mentions. Also, from the types of non-physical impurity or shirk and kufr. Shirk and kufr and disbelief, no doubt they are types of impurity. But again, they are not physical impurities that you can see and you can wash away with water. But rather they are impurities that are non-physical. They are impurities that lie within the heart of that person. But it's an impurity. So these are what's meant by physical impurities, urine and feces, something physical you can wash away, or non-physical impurities like bad and corrupt manners or shirk and kufr. That's the different types. Then, the shaykh is now going to go on to explain what purification means Islamically. That was the definition of purification linguistically. Linguistically, purification, it occurs... From or the meaning of it is to purify yourself from dirt and to purify yourself from uh, the impurities, and those impurities can be physical, like urine, or they can be non-physical, like corrupt manners or kufr and shirk. But then, what does purification mean Islamically? So then the Sheikh says, "Amma tahara tu sharan." As for purification Islamically, فَهِيَ رَفْعُ الْحَدَثِ وَمَا فِي مَعْنَاهُ وَزَوَالُ الْخَبَثِ وَالْحَدَثِ مَعْنَا يَقُومُ بِالْبَدَنِ وَهُوَ شَيْءٌ غَيْرُ مَحْسُوسٌ يَمْنَعُ مِنْ صِحَّةِ الصَّلَاءِ وَالطَّوَافِ وَمَسِّ الْمُصْحَفِ إِلَى غَيْرِ ذَلِكِ فَيُقَالُ لِلْمُحْدِثِ حَدَثًا أَصْغَرْ أَوْ أَكْبَرْ يُقَالُ لَهُ غَيْرُ طَاهِرٌ So he says, uh, Islamically, Purification is al hadath. It is to remove or to raise, to get rid of that hadath. Hadath, as we're going to come to see, hadath is that type of impurity. And there's different types of impurity, but we're going to come to those definitions. So it is to remove that impurity. That impurity or something which is similar to that impurity from the person... And typically this impurity is something that would prevent a person from doing certain acts of worship like praying or fasting, uh, sorry, praying or making tawaf or touching uh, the mushaf, a copy of the Qur'an or other than that. So a person who has committed a hadath, this type of impurity, whether it's a minor impurity or a major impurity, 
which we're going to come to the meanings of, then that person, it is said, he is not pure. He is currently upon a state of impurity. So when a person is upon that state of impurity, he has committed an act which causes him to not be able to do certain types of worship. For example, the prayer and the tawaf and touching the mushaf. And even for the menstruating woman, not to be able to fast. So when this impurity is upon that person, when this impurity is upon that person, then he is not able to do those acts of worship until he removes that impurity. That's hadith. And that hadith is something which is abstract. It doesn't necessarily have to be something which is physical. However, zawalul khabath, which is the second part of the definition, is to remove something physical, some physical type of impurity. That is, for example, if your clothing, for example, there is some urine that falls onto it, or some uh, feces that falls onto it. So then that person must remove that impurity, wash it away. So now if you combine all of that together, then we understand what the meaning of purification is Islamically. Islamically therefore it is to remove or to raise from yourself the hadith, which is an abstract type of impurity, or to remove al-khabath, which is a physical type of impurity. Therefore in summary, purification Islamically is to remove the impurities from yourself whether they are physical or non-physical to remove those impurities that would typically prevent you from being able to do certain acts of worship if you were upon those impurities obviously all of this will come in detail what do we mean which types of impurities how are they removed all of that will come this is just a general definition to start off with so now the sheikh says why did Al-Hafid ibn Hajar begin with the chapter of purification? This is a book of a hadith. A hadith from the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. Many different a hadith. Some of them about the prayer. Some of them about hajj. Some of them about fasting. Some of them about zakat. Why did the shaykh begin with the a hadith that are linked to purification and water? Why not begin with the prayer? Or zakat or hajj? Why not begin with those affairs? Why begin with purification and washing yourself and making wudu and the type of water you can use? Why begin with those things? What's the wisdom in beginning with the chapter of purification before even getting to the chapter of the prayer or the hajj or zakat or fasting? Why? What's the wisdom behind that? Why did the scholars always begin in this way? That they begin with the chapter of purification first before they get to the prayer or the hajj or other things. Because purification is a prerequisite to those actions. Prayer, is it possible for a person to pray without wudu? It's not possible. If a person is in a state of major impurity from intercourse, is he able to do his prayer? Is he able to go and do tawaf? He's not able to do those things. So an individual... He requires to know about how to purify himself so that he can prepare himself to pray. And he can prepare himself to make hajj and to do the other acts of worship. He needs to know how he can bring himself to a state of purity. 
Because that purity is a prerequisite for the prayer. That's why the scholars, they begin with teaching you how to purify yourself so that in order that you can be ready and you are prepared then to move on to the chapter of praying because wudu, it is something which pre, uh, is a prerequisite to the prayer. So that's why the scholars, they begin with these uh, chapters, the chapters concerning purification and the chapters concerning wudu and the chapters concerning the different types of water because all of these are prerequisites to the prayer. Then the Shaykh says, Babul Miyah, the first subsection within this chapter of purification is Babul Miyah, the chapter of the different types of water. So why again you might ask, now we're in the chapter of purification, why didn't the Shaykh begin straight to it, Wudu and Ghusl? That's the types of purification, Wudu and Ghusl. Why did the Shaykh begin by speaking about different types of water and mentioning the hadith about different types of water first? Exactly, because to be able to make wudu and ghusl properly, you need to know which type of water you have to use. Which type of water is allowed for you to use. There's no point somebody knowing how to make wudu and ghusl properly, but then he goes and ends up using impure water to do it. So you need to know which types of water you're allowed to use and you need to be using to be able to perform the wudu and the ghusl properly. So that's why the shaykh begins with the chapter of water and explaining what the different types of water are. So the first hadith then that the shaykh begins this book, Bulugh al-Maram with is the hadith of Abu Huraira in the chapter of water. The hadith of Abu Hurairah radiyallahu anhu qal qala rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam fil bahar huwa at-tahuru ma'uhu al-hillu maytatu akhrajahu al-arba'a wa ibn abi shayba wa lafzu lahu wa sahahahu ibn khuzayma wa tirmidhi wa rawahu malikun wa shafi'i wa ahmad This hadith of Abu Hurairah where the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said concerning the water of the oceans and the seas in this hadith of Abu Hurairah, he narrates that the Prophet ﷺ said, with regards to the water of the oceans and the seas, That this water, it is pure in of itself, and purifying to other than itself. The water is pure in of itself, and it is purifying to other than itself. Because as we will come to see, there is a type of water that might be pure, but it is not suitable to purify other things. It's pure by itself, in of itself, it's pure. But it cannot purify other things. And there is a type of water that is pure in of itself, and it can be purifying to other things. It can be used to purify other things with. The sea water, the ocean water is of that type. That it is a type of water that is pure in of itself and it can be used to purify other things. That's what the Prophet ﷺ said here. Huwa tahuru ma'uhu. It is pure and purifying its water, the water of the oceans and the seas. Al-hillu maytatuhu. And the dead animals of the sea are permissible to eat, even if they haven't been slaughtered. 
This is the first hadith that is mentioned in Bulugh al-Maram. What we'll say here as well is that as we do Bulugh al-Maram, as we continue on this weekly basis, inshaAllah, then what is going to be expected of the people who attend, especially those who want to make an effort, and what those who seriously want to gain knowledge, then what's going to be expected, and of the children also, that they memorize the hadith as we go along. That everybody memorizes the hadith as we go along. And we're not going to do more than two or three per lesson. At the most, there might be some lessons where we do two or three, maybe four at the maximum. And it's very unlikely we will do more than two or three or four hadith in one session. So at the most, what you will have is maybe one or two or three hadith to memorize in the week. So this is something that you should do and it is expected that you do. For those who wish to seek knowledge in a serious manner, then this is what needs to be done. Because when you memorize something, then that it compounds your knowledge and it establishes and makes firm your knowledge. More than if you only understand. If you understand the explanation to this hadith as we give it now, as we read from the explanation of Sheikh Salih al-Fawzan, that's good. But the person who memorizes the hadith and then also has the understanding to go with it, that's even better. And that's the highest level. To have the memorization and the understanding. That's better than just to have the understanding. The one who has the memorization, it stays with him longer and the knowledge is established and firm. As for the person who only understands an issue, then maybe later on he forgets. Maybe he will forget what that issue was about and how it was. But an individual who memorizes the text to go with the issue then the knowledge of that issue and the understanding of that issue stays with him better also. So this is what we expect for everyone to do. And inshallah we'll listen to people. For those who want to be serious, then we will listen to them every week. They can come and they can recite the hadith or we'll pick people to recite the hadith. So this is what you need to be doing every week. It's only one or two hadith. It won't take you more than half an hour or one hour in the week to memorize these one or two or three hadith. Look at this one now, it's barely five or six words what you have to memorize. Anabi Huraira Qal Qal Rasulam at Filbahar Huatahurumahu al Hilumaitatuhu. Finished. Takes barely a few minutes. So this is what you should do every week to memorize. And as we get along, you'll see the benefits of that. In five months, six months, eight months, inshaAllah, as we continue, you'll have memorized two hundred, three hundred, four hundred, a thousand hadith. Two or three every week. So make an effort to do that. Try your best to do that. And for those who are serious upon the seeking of the knowledge, that's what you should be doing. Memorizing these hadith every week. So then, let's uh, begin with the explanation of this hadith. Firstly, Sheikh Saleh al-Fawzan, he mentions the narrator, Abu Huraira. Abu Huraira is the one who has narrated this hadith. And the Sheikh says, it is known that Abu Huraira, he is one of the great companions. And he is known by his kunya, by this... Uh, Yani as they say in English, the nickname. He is known by this nickname, uh, which is Abu Huraira, the Kunya. As for his name, then the scholars, they differ about it. The scholars, they differ about the name of Abu Huraira, and what his name actually was. To the extent that there are approximately 30 different opinions. There are approximately 30 different opinions as to what Abu Huraira's actual name was. But the strongest of these opinions is that his name was Abdurrahman Abdurrahman Ibn Ibn Sakhar al-Dawsi. They say that the strongest opinion is that his name was Abdurrahman Ibn Sakhar al-Dawsi. 
And they, they mention other names too. They say Abdullah ibn Sakhr, some of them said. However, the, the strongest is Abdurrahman ibn Sakhr al-Dawsi. And he was with the Prophet ﷺ. And he would listen to the ahadith from the Prophet ﷺ and narrate those ahadith. And indeed the Prophet ﷺ made dua for Abu Hurairah. It's mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ made dua for Abu Hurairah. And for that reason, or from amongst those reasons that the Prophet ﷺ made dua for him, it caused Abu Hurairah by the permission of Allah to be from the greatest of the companions and narrations. The greatest. He narrated more ahadith than any other companion. Abu Huraira. Because he made himself completely vacant to narrate ahadith. He did not busy himself with other affairs except for the narration of the ahadith of the Prophet ﷺ. He never used to engage himself in business. He never used to engage himself in other affairs. Instead, he used to stick to that which was related to the ahadith of the Prophet ﷺ. Other than arranging for himself or what was required in terms of food and living. But other than that, his time was completely for the ahadith of the Prophet ﷺ. And he would be patient upon the hunger, the hunger which would strike him as a consequence of him busying himself completely upon the ahadith. He would be patient upon these affairs. And that's why he became the greatest companion in the narrations of the ahadith of the Prophet ﷺ. And it's mentioned that he narrated how many? Did anyone know how many ahadith the Prophet ﷺ narrated? So the actual number, the actual number is 5,347. 5,347. 5,347 hadith. Or something you know, very close to that figure. Something very close to that figure. That is the general figure there or thereabouts what the scholars mention. 5,347. Depending on how you break up the chains of narration etc. The numbers can increase or decrease. But generally speaking 5,347 there or thereabouts. Approximately just under 5,500. And the Shaykh mentions that there are no other companions who reached that level. There are no other companions who narrated that level of a hadith. And in fact, Shaykh Saleh al-Fawzan here, he mentions, وَكَانَ يَسْهَرُ اللَّيْلَ لِحِفْتِ الْحَدِيثِ He used to stay up at night. Abu Huraira used to stay up at night to memorize these ahadith. Then, it says, عَنَ أَبِي هُرَيْرَ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ أَنَّ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ سَسَمْ قَالَ فِي الْبَحْرِ that the Prophet ﷺ said with regards to the Bahr, with regards to the ocean or the sea. This particular wording that the Prophet ﷺ said with regards to the ocean, fil Bahr, they say this wording is mudraj from Abu Huraira, meaning that this is Abu Huraira, his own wording. He mentioned that. Abu Huraira himself mentioned this part in the hadith. This up to now is still the speech of Abu Huraira. That Abu Huraira said, the Prophet ﷺ said about the ocean, and then the next part, is the actual wording of the Prophet ﷺ. So they say that this particular first part, that the Prophet ﷺ spoke about the ocean, they say this is Abu Huraira explaining this bit. 
This is Abu Huraira adding that so that everybody understands the hadith is related to the ocean and the sea. Then Al-Bahar, they say, what does Bahar mean linguistically? Ma ma'ana Al-Bahar? Lughatan. Qalu huwa shaq. It is the split. It is a split. وَمِنْهُ الْبَحَائِرْ مِنْ بَهِيمَةِ الْأَنْعَامِ وَهِيَ الَّتِي تُشَقُّ آذَانُهَا You know some of the cattle or the uh, grazing animals, the camels and the sheep and the cows, sometimes you see that they slit their ears, they cut their ears. You see sometimes they have a slit in their ears, these grazing animals. Those who have experience of that will know about these things. They sometimes have this split or this cut in their grazing animals. That split or cut is known as the Baha'ir. And that's the plural of Bahira. And that's where the word Bahar comes from, a split. Because in reality, this is a type of split in the earth. The ocean is a split in the earth. The sea is a split within the earth. And that's why they mention or they say that Bahar means Bahar, sea and ocean. Because it is a split in the ground. Normally you have the flat ground and this is a split within the ground where this water, it gathers upon it. That's what they say Al-Bahar means. Then, Al-Bihar is obviously the plural of it. Then Bihar is the plural of Bahar. Then the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. He says, هُوَ الطَّهُورُ مَاؤُهُ الْحِلُّ مَيْتَتُهُ This hadith, actually there's a story behind it. There's a story behind how this hadith came about. There's a story behind why the Prophet ﷺ mentioned this hadith. The story is, uh, as the, the, in one of the narrations, in the extended narrations of this hadith, it mentions that some of the people that came to the Prophet ﷺ and they said to him, Ya Rasulullah, إِنَّنَا نَرْكَبُ الْبَحْرِ يَعْنِي نُسَافِرُ فِي الْبَحْرِ وَمَعَنَا الْقَلِيلُ مِنَ الْمَاءِ يَعْنِي مِنَ الْمَاءِ الْعَذْرِ فَإِنْ تَوَضَّأْنَا بِهِ عَطِشْنَا فَإِنْ تَوَضَّأْنَا بِهِ عَطَشْنَا أَفَنَتَوَضَّأُ بِهِ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ فَقَالَ عَلَيْهِ صَلَاةُ وَالسَّلَامُ هُوَ الطَّهُورُ مَا هُوَ الْحِلُّ مَيْتَتُهُ They mentioned that there was a group of people, a group of individuals who came to the Prophet sailors. They were sailors. And they said to the Prophet that when we go out onto the ocean in our ships, when we go out onto the seas and the oceans upon our ships, we have only a small amount of fresh drinking water. We have only a small amount of fresh drinking water. So, when we go out on the ocean in the sea, shall we make wudu with this small amount of fresh drinking water, these few barrels or whatever it is that we have? Because if we do, then we're going to run out of this fresh drinking water and we're going to be out on the ocean and we won't have any fresh drinking water left. So what do we do? Do we still have to use this fresh drinking water to make wudu with? Because if we do, we only have a small amount we can take with us on the ship. And then we're going to run out of it and we're going to be still out on the ocean. Then we won't have anything left to drink. That was the question. That was the question posed to the Prophet ﷺ. That we have a small amount of fresh drinking water we can carry with us out onto the ocean in our ships, if we use it for making wudu, we run out of drinking water. So do we use it to make wudu or not? So then the Prophet ﷺ replied, هُوَ الطَّهُورُ مَاؤُهُ الْحِلُّ مَيْتَتُهُ 
He said to them, the ocean water, the sea water, it is purifying, it is pure. Meaning, you can use the sea water to make your wudu with. You don't have to worry about the fresh drinking water. Why did the companions or these people ask about that in the first place? Why? Why would they ask if the... Because obviously they thought there was an issue with the, the ocean water. What was the issue with the ocean water? Salty. It's salt water. The ocean water and the sea water, it is salt water. So they were thinking, is it allowed to use this salt water or not? Are we allowed to use that salt water or not? That's why they asked the Prophet ﷺ, do we have to stick to the fresh water, the drinking water we have? But then the Prophet ﷺ explained to them that the salt water of the sea, the ocean, it's pure. You can use it, you can make your wudu with it. It is purifying. It is pure and it is purifying to use that water of the ocean. However, the Prophet ﷺ, when he told them that, he didn't just say, and stop at that. He also mentioned at the end, and the animals that die within that seawater are also legitimate to eat. That section will come to in a moment, but bear that in mind also. Bearing in mind that the people who came to the Prophet ﷺ, they didn't ask him about the animals of the sea, whether they can eat the ocean animals or not. They came to ask whether they can make wudu with it or not. But the Prophet ﷺ mentioned that extra benefit at the end also. We'll come to that in a section, in a second. So now the Shaykh explains. When the Prophet ﷺ said, huwa at-tahuru ma'uhu, tahur with a fatha on the ta, huwa at-tahuru ma'uhu. That is something that you can use to make purification from. It is water that is used to make purification from. So that indicates that this water, it is pure for you to make your purification from it. Ma'uhu, ma'uhu, i.e. the water, the water of the sea. The water of the sea is pure. And this is the basis, the fundamental, the principle. Principally, all water, water is principally pure. And that is mentioned in the Qur'an, وَيُنَزِّلُ عَلَيْكُمْ مِنَ السَّمَاءِ مَاءً لِيُطَهِّرَكُمْ بِهِ And Allah uh, sends down from the skies water to purify you with it. So water is originally purifying. Also it's mentioned in the Qur'an, وَأَنزَلْنَا مِنَ السَّمَاءِ مَاءً طَهُورًا We have sent down from the skies pure water. So water in its essence, that is the basis of purification. Water is the basis of purification. So here in this part, the Prophet ﷺ has made the ruling clear that using ocean water and sea water to make wudu with and make ghusl with and to use for purification is completely permissible. It's allowed, that's legitimate. But then there was an extra benefit added on at the end. The Prophet ﷺ also said to them, the animals that live in the sea that die there, you can eat them. Meaning... Animals that live exclusively in the oceans and the sea Not amphibious animals Or not animals that come out and live on the land And then they sometimes go and live in the sea Not those Animals that only live in the ocean and the sea Exclusively in the ocean and the sea Then those animals 
you're allowed to eat them even if they have died and you haven't slaughtered them. Animals, if you go to the sea and you're doing some fishing and you manage to pull out a fish which is dead, it's already dead, you didn't even get a chance to slaughter it. There's no such thing. You don't have to slaughter the animals of the sea. Animals of the sea, if you find something dead, you're allowed to take it and eat it, even without slaughtering it. So that's what's meant by that the animals of the sea are pure for you to eat. That information, the Prophet ﷺ made it clear to them. Why? Why did the Prophet ﷺ make it clear to them that the animals of the sea that are exclusively of the sea, that's the point that the scholars they mention, that they are not animals that come out sometimes and they go live there sometimes, but they are exclusively animals of the sea. If you find some animal dead in the sea, obviously not something that's rotting and uh, it's been there dead for a long time, you wouldn't eat that because of the harms. But something which is freshly died in the sea and you find it, you can take it and eat it. A fish or some other type of sea animal, you can take it and eat it without having to slaughter it. Why did the Prophet ﷺ tell them that? Why might they think that you can't eat dead animals from the sea? Is he allowed to eat dead animals normally? Exactly. So normally the ruling is, Al-Mayta, a dead animal that has died by itself, or died from some other cause, other than the Islamic slaughtering. An animal that has died without the Islamic slaughtering, so it's died because of natural causes, or it died because it fell from a cliff, or it died because it drowned, Whatever reason, an animal that died without the Islamic slaughtering is meta. That animal normally is not allowed to eat. حُرِّمَتْ عَلَيْكُمُ الْمَيْتَ That the dead animals that have not been slaughtered are haram for you to eat. So if you go into a wood, you're walking in a forest and you find a dead rabbit. You find a dead rabbit. Is it allowed to make a campfire and cook the rabbit and eat it? Haram, it's not allowed the rabbit is dead. You didn't slaughter it. It was already dead. So normally, dead animals, you can't take them and eat them. Cows, sheep, anything. If you go to a field, you have a field full of cows. You go to the field one day in the morning and one of the cows is dead. You realize that overnight, something happened and the cow died. Can you take it and cut it up and take the meat and eat it? You can't. Because the cow is dead and you didn't slaughter it. You didn't slaughter it. It died by itself. So an animal that dies by itself in that way, it's not permissible to eat it. That's the basis, that's the principle. However, here the Prophet ﷺ explained to them that that principle, it doesn't apply to the animals of the ocean. The animals of the ocean and the sea, you can take them and eat them even without slaughtering. If they've died in there, you can take them, the fish, etc. and eat them. But animals that are specifically of the sea, meaning that if there was a bird flying over the ocean, a seagull or something, and it died, something happened, and it fell into the ocean, and, and, and it fell into the bottom, and it drowned. Can you, if you find that now, say that this is an animal of the ocean, so I can eat it, it's died in the ocean. Wrong. Not, the hadith doesn't mean that any animal that has died in the ocean, you can eat it. A chicken, if it falls in and dies, you can't eat it. A cow, if it falls in and dies, you can't eat it. A bird that falls in and dies, you can't eat it. But animals that live in the ocean itself, 
If they die, you can take them and eat them. So if a bird falls into the ocean and dies, you can't take that bird and eat it. It's haram. But animals that live in the ocean, you can take them and eat them. That's the meaning of this. And there are other hadith which show the uh, exclusions. Those things which are excluded from the ruling of not eating unsacrificed animals. Like the hadith where the Prophet ﷺ mentioned, وَحِلَّ لَنَا مَيْتَتَانِ وَدَمَانِ Two dead animals or two types of animals are permissible for you to eat even without slaughtering. And two types of daman, uh, <coughs> two types of organs or blood. فَأَمَّا الْمَيْتَتَانِ As for the dead animals, الْحُوتُ وَالْجَرَادِ Al-hut, like the whales, the fish. Wal-jarad, locusts. They are permissible to eat even without slaughtering. Wa'amma uh, daman and as for the uh, two types of organs of blood, fal-kabid, wa-tahal. Al-kabid, liver. But the point of the hadith here anyway, is about the maytatan. The maytatan is the hut and the jarad. The whale, the fish, and the jarad, the locusts. So that's what's meant here. Here there are, there are some differences of opinion. Some of the scholars, they differed. Some of the, there's many opinions about this. Some of the scholars, they said that it's not every animal that lives in the ocean that you can eat. Some of the scholars, it's a weak opinion, but some of them said that animals that resemble animals that live on land, you can't eat them. So they said, for example, a seahorse. They said a seahorse is haram to eat. If it dies by itself in the ocean, you can't eat a seahorse. They said, why? Because a seahorse, it resembles a horse that lives on land. And therefore, you can't eat those animals. But those types of opinions are weak. The reality is that an animal that lives exclusively in the sea, then that is permissible to eat. Uh, here the Sheikh mentions some of the exclusions. There are some types of animals that the scholars have excluded and they said that they are impermissible. فَقَالُوا إِنَّهَا حَرَامٌ They said they are impermissible. مَعَ أَنَّهَا لَا تَعِيشُ إِلَّا فِي الْبَحْرِ Despite the fact that they do not live except in the water. Why? قَالُوا لِأَنَّ الضِّفْدَعْ وَالْحَيَّ مِنَ الْمُسْتَخْبَثَاتِ وَاللَّهُ تَعَالَى يَقُولُ وَيُحَرِّمُ عَلَيْهِمُ الْخَبَائِثِ Some of them said, for example, frogs and snakes. There are certain types of frogs and snakes that live in the water. But the scholars said, no, this is not permissible because frogs and snakes, they are from the, the types of animals that are disgusting. You wouldn't want to have a frog on your plate and eating a frog. It's something which is, or a toad. It is something which is disliked. So from that angle of, from that perspective of disliking and disgust at these types of animals, then they say it's not permissible to eat. With the ayah in the Qur'an that Allah said, وَيُحَرِّمُ عَلَيْهِمُ الْخَبَائِفِ and he makes impermissible upon them the khaba'ith, these, uh, these uh, dirty or disgusting or unliked, uh, despicable type of things. Uh, also they said, at-timsah, crocodile. They said, a crocodile is not permissible to eat, فَلِأَنَّهُ muftaris, Because it is a carnivore. They said, a crocodile is not allowed to eat because it is a carnivore. It is a predator. هُوَ مِنَ sabah. It's a predator. And the Prophet ﷺ has already made impermissible the eating of types of animals that are predators and carnivores of that nature. Predators of that nature are not permissible to eat. Because of the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, the hadith in Sahih Muslim that the Prophet ﷺ, he made it haram to eat 
animals that have dhunab. Nab is like the big incisor teeth, the big canine teeth. Animals that have the big canine teeth and they rip meat apart and they are predators with their big canine teeth. It's not permissible to eat them. Similarly, birds that have claws, birds that have claws, big talons, then it's not permissible to eat those types of birds. So again, they said because of that, it's not permissible to eat the crocodiles. Like eagles and things. The ones with big talons, they say. Um, the Sheikh says, however, ولكن الصحيح أنه لا يستثنى من حيوانات البحر شيء لعموم هذا الحديث because of the generality of this hadith. The Sheikh says that none of these in reality should be excused. However, the scholars have given specific evidences for these. And one of them is that animals, they must be exclusively in the sea. So now things like crocodiles and alligators, do they live ex- exclusively in the sea or on the land as well? They're on the land as well. Even frogs and toads, on the land as well. So these types of rulings they have, or they do come into play. So perhaps uh, it would be the case that due to those types of reasonings, some scholars would say you can't eat these types of animals, frogs and snakes and crocodiles and alligators. Well, that's uh, uh, some differences of opinion and some exceptions that the scholars have made. But generally speaking, the general rule is something which lives exclusively in the ocean. If it dies in the ocean, then that is something which is permissible to eat. Uh, at the end, the Sheikh says, وَالْحَدِيثُ الصَّحِيحِ uh, an authentic hadith is something which has been narrated by authentic narrators one from another uh, in the chain of narration without any uh, without any uh, issues within that without any problems or without any issues within the chain of narration and so they say that this is an authentic hadith uh, the benefits that the sheikh mentions at the end the benefits of this hadith firstly the first benefit the sheikh mentions he mentions five benefits the first of them that you return to the people of knowledge when you are not sure of something. Here, those people, those sailors, they came to the Prophet ﷺ to find out. They weren't sure about the ocean water. So they went to the Prophet ﷺ to find out. First, Ask the people of knowledge if you do not know. The second one is that the hadith is a clear evidence that the water of the ocean and other types of water are permissible for you to use for purification. Also, the third uh, benefit he brings is وَفِي الْحَدِيثِ دَلِيلَ عَلَىٰ أَنَّهُ يُشْتَرَةُ طَهُورِيَّةُ الْمَاءِ That the water must be pure for you to be able to purify yourself from. If the water is impure, you can't purify yourself from it. The ocean and the sea, the Prophet said, it is pure. So you can use it to make your wudu. So the evidence that is derived from that is that the water that you use must be pure water. And we're going to come into more detail with that in the following hadith next week. Or tomorrow in fact. That the water must be pure. The fourth issue is the permissibility of eating the animals that are living in the ocean, that die there exclusively from the ocean. And the fifth thing that the shaykh mentions is that it is permissible for a person or it is something which an individual can do, that when a person is asked a question, 
you answer the question when a person, a scholar, somebody is asked a question, he can answer the question, but he can add extra information if he recognizes that the person asking the question will be in need of that extra information also, even though he hasn't asked about it. So now these sailors are out in the ocean. Is this extra information that they can eat the fish beneficial to them or not? Clearly it's beneficial to them, beneficial for them to know that information also. So here it indicates you can give extra additional information onto the question of a person where there is benefit to do so as the Prophet ﷺ did that. And that is from the wisdom of the Prophet ﷺ, that is from the wisdom of giving da'wah, that you recognize that this questioner, he has asked a particular question, but there is extra details that he requires linked to that situation of his. So you give those extra details also. And so that is the first hadith. Uh, which we'll conclude on today, and the ruling to be taken from that is what then? If you're out in a boat, rowing away on the sea or the ocean, and you need to make wudu, then is it permissible to use the water to make wudu with or not? It's permissible. So ocean water and sea water, it is permissible to use in purification. And the animals that live within the sea, that die, you can take them and eat them even without having slaughtered them. Even without the slaughtering, it is permissible to eat them. And that is the first hadith mentioned.